It's Sunday the 8th of September. This is Monocle's House View with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to the programme. Coming up in the next half hour, the latest developments here in London as another senior Conservative minister quits the government and the party too. What I had expected to see was a huge government-centred effort to get a deal. And at the moment, there is a lot of work going on into no deal and not enough going into getting a deal. We'll have more on the resignation of the former Work and Pension Secretary Amber Rudd, plus what promises to be another tough week for British politics. Plus we hear more on Donald Trump's abrupt cancellation of the Taliban peace deal and why two panda cubs in a Berlin zoo could start a diplomatic row between Germany and China. All that plus we go through the day's newspapers as well. That's all coming up on Monocle House View. And we begin with what lies ahead for the British government this week. There are plans to try to trigger another general election before the UK is scheduled to leave the EU. But what exactly is left of the British government? 21 MPs were expelled from the Conservative Party earlier this week after they voted to block a no-deal Brexit. Then the Prime Minister Boris Johnson's brother and University Minister Joe Johnson resigned, citing tensions between loyalties to his family and to his country. And then last night, the Work and Pension Secretary Amber Rudd resigned too. Well, to help me unpick another day in British politics and looking ahead to another complicated week, I'm delighted to say joining me on the line is Robin Lustig, who's a journalist and former BBC presenter, and in the studio, Elizabeth Braw, who leads the Modern Deterrence Programme at the Royal United Services Institute. Welcome to you both. Um, Robin, if I may begin with you, um, the departure of Amber Rudd last night, let's uh, talk a little bit about that. Uh, and a very, very loyal and often public face of the Conservative Party, and yet she becomes the next high-profile figure to say she just doesn't want to deal with this yes it's a it's a huge blow uh, i i think it's almost as large a blow as the resignation of boris johnson's own brother joe johnson um what struck me last night when amber rudd's decision was made public was not only the fact that she had quit but the language she used in her letter of resignation to the prime minister she accused him of having mounted what she called an assault on decency and democracy now those are incendiary words she was referring of course to uh, his decision to expel those 21 conservative mps uh, who had not backed his position uh, on Brexit, including some extremely senior MPs, two former chancellors of the Exchequer among them, and uh, the father of the House, Kenneth Clark. So um, it, it was a huge blow, and uh, it was hard to really to escape the immediate uh, impression that the wheels really are falling off his administration before he's barely had a time to set out. Elizabeth, uh, you lead the Modern Deterrence Programme at the Royal United Services Institute. I would imagine that you often consider countries whose diplomatic, so whose democratic systems are arguably slightly less robust than the one uh, that, that we find ourselves in this morning here in the United Kingdom. Um, can you draw any comparisons between what's happening in the United Kingdom and what's happening um, elsewhere, given the fact that everybody has said this week that democracy was pushed and pulled and we're not entirely sure who won. Well, I think um, decency made a little bit of a step forward when when those 21 MPs stood up for uh, principles and and the the 
the good of the country as opposed to their own careers, which they sacrificed in the process. And and um, Robin just mentioned those uh, two very senior um, uh, members of that uh, group of 21, but there were also more junior members of, of parliament in that group who really did sacrifice their political careers. People... Uh, who had, who have been, for example, junior ministers, and were hoping to, uh, at some point, return as members of the cabinet. That's now, uh, unless we have a major uh, shakeups of some sort, that's over. They have uh, sacrificed their careers for the good of the country, and I think that's really something that we have to remember. And. Um, as, as, as far as other countries are concerned, I can't think of anything like it. And if you look at Italy, <laughs> by comparison, it looks like a, a paragon of political stability. <laughs> as we speak, or this week, they managed to put together a government of two parties that have previously been um, uh, deadly foes, and they managed to put their differences aside and form a government uh, so as to avoid a... Um, uh, a new election and I think that's something it's it's a sign of political maturity and yet the UK which is really has been for so long a paragon of of democracy and good governance uh, we struggled <laughs> to accommodate people with different uh, opinions in, in our own parties. Uh, Robin, you mentioned a moment ago um, the father of the house, Ken Clark, who uh, has given an, uh, an interview to the Observer newspaper today. And um, one of the strong quotes that comes out of it is that he says that um, the irony that Boris Johnson is acting like a fanatic when he's not really a politician at all with any great commit convictions. He's not committed very powerfully to anything, says Ken Clark. He's not frightfully interested in policy. Um, he never was a hardline Brexiteer. That was a last minute decision decision he made to join that side. Unfortunately, he's now surrounded himself with hardcore ultra-right-wing zany people. There has been that focus, hasn't there, Robin, that the the direction of travel um, embarked by the British government has very much been steered by a, a very strong and, and very vocal minority who one gets the impression have been waiting for years to get this opportunity. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. And it goes back um, really to the uh, moment when Theresa May, the previous Prime Minister, lost her majority in Parliament. Um, she then found herself completely in thrall uh, because of parliamentary arithmetic largely to the most extreme elements in her own party who were the believers in what's become known as a no-deal Brexit, a clean break. Just leave the EU with no deal in place and see what happens. I mean, I think Ken Clark makes a very good point. If one looks back to Boris Johnson's time as mayor of London, he at that time was regarded as what I suppose you could call a social liberal. Um, he was not anti-immigration. He, uh, he is himself uh, partly Turkish, in fact, but um, he 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 was not an extreme right winger or an extreme Brexiteer at that time. He did make, I think, Ken Clark is right, a conscious decision that the way for him to become leader of the party and prime minister was to ally himself with the anti-EU elements in his party, and he now finds himself completely bound by them. I mean, I've been absolutely astounded watching him over the last few days how utterly miserable he looks and how utterly incompetent he looks the one thing Boris Johnson was supposed to be good at was PR he was meant to be this wonderful speaker who could charm the birds out of the trees he has looked like a bumbling incompetent over the last few days this is a very unhappy man who finds himself completely out of his depth
depth and who's doing things which he never really meant to do. And if I can add to that, the reason that so many MPs uh, supported him when uh, during the leadership campaign and, and then, uh, of course, members of the Conservative Party uh, elected him as leader of the party was that he was he had this aura of the winner. And that's a sort of it's a very intangible thing. You have the aura of the winner. But now <laughs> the aura of the winner is, is clearly uh, fading quickly. And, and he has nothing else uh, because he, he is not a master of detail. He's not a master of of um, uh, the executed um, policies of government or, or of, of any sort of details of, of policy ideas. So if, if, if Robin just said, if, if, if you can't win the, the PR battle, then or if he can't win the PR battle, then he doesn't really have um, much else to offer at all. And, and, and yet it's, a, it's very interesting if you look at the most recent opinion polling, which of course was done before the resignation of Amber Rudd, but nevertheless the, 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 the argument holds true uh, even so, the Conservative Party's opinion poll ratings are still much, much higher than the Labour Party's. It is possible that the strategy which uh, Boris Johnson's senior advisor Dominic Cummings has devised might still work. When the election comes, whether it's sooner or later, it is by no means impossible that Boris Johnson and the Conservatives will win again. Because the kinds of things that we love talking about in the sort of political village are not necessarily the kinds of things that get through to a lot of voters. To a lot of voters, what they hear is Boris Johnson determined to get Britain out of the EU, which is what they want if that's how they voted in the referendum, and he is prepared to do anything to do it. Now, that may well stay still have real resonance with a significant number of voters. There is something that uh, we mentioned a little while ago. It's the issue of um, the, the government will try and call another um, general election. Just for those of us who don't necessarily follow every cough and spit, Robin, why is it absolutely vital for Boris Johnson to get an election called before Parliament uh, retires or uh, um, is, is prorogued later this week? Well, because he has no majority in Parliament at the moment, he is completely unable to get anything he wants through Parliament with the current makeup of, of the House of Commons. If uh, an act to call a new election is not passed before it rises, is prorogued, to use that awful word, uh, later this week, then he doesn't get another chance until the middle of October, which means that there won't be an election before the supposed deadline for Brexit at the end of October. So the, the timing, it, it's his own fault, it was his decision to call for the prorogation of Parliament next week, but he's now finds himself in this real bind, and that's why these are all these extraordinary suggestions that he might break the law, that he might refuse to send the Act to get the Royal Assembly from Queen Elizabeth, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I don't actually think any of that's going to happen because let's remember one thing. What he has been told or what he will be told when this act is passed to do is to ask for an extension to the Brexit deadline by October the 19th. That's still more than a month away. We have seen what can happen over five days. What can happen in five weeks, goodness only knows. And since you mentioned, uh, since we mentioned earlier that the, the 
the village uh, that uh, keeps analyzing every bit of of uh, uh, political news. I think that the most interesting uh, comment this week or the, over these past days came from a, a local resident in uh, in a town in Yorkshire who asked Boris when Boris visited there, "Why are you here? Why are you not in Brussels?" And and uh, this uh, local resident <laughs> had uh, really put. I mean, he put his finger on on something really important, which is Boris says he wants a deal. So why is he not in Brussels? And that's also something that Amber Rudd pointed out in her, her resignation letter. There are no real negotiations with the EU, uh, and haven't been. Uh, they haven't. They haven't been happening since since uh, Boris took over as prime minister. It's, so it's really. Um, uh, I, I don't want to say a lie, but, uh, but it is really misleading to say that we are making great progress in our negotiations with the EU when Boris is up in Yorkshire and and a cabinet minister says there there are no serious negotiations. And of course, the EU has said the same thing. There is a- I, I'm happy to use the word lie, uh, Emma, because uh, Boris Johnson has a reputation of being a serial liar. He has lied throughout his career, both as a journalist and as a politician, and he has been lying still. And one of the other damaging things, as Elizabeth points out, that was in the Amber Rudd letter last night, she exposed the lie. He says we're making great progress in negotiations. She says, as somebody who sat around the cabinet table, there is no evidence that any negotiations negotiations have been taking place. It was a lie. There is that, uh, I think that what people have more uh, rather diplomatically been saying is that Boris Johnson's relationship with the truth has been a complicated one. Um, <laughs> but it's it's one of those issues that yesterday the papers were all full of the issue that perhaps Boris Johnson could end up in prison over all this. Robin, explain that for us. Well, if tomorrow uh, the Act of Parliament instructing him to seek an extension of the Article 50 letter uh, deadline at the end of October is gives the gets the royal assent then he is in a bind because he has said absolutely categorically he will not do that he will then be in contravention of the law if he doesn't do it by October the 19th two things then follow he could be arrested and charged with a criminal offence fairly unlikely or he could be held in contempt of court more likely but still bringing the judiciary into a political arena which of course they are always very reluctant to do personally i think neither of those things are likely to happen personally i think more likely is that johnson will resign possibly call a vote of no confidence in his own government and that could happen within the next few days i mean we are in real alice in wonderland territory here but he could call a vote of no confidence in his own government which if the opposition parties vote for it uh would then lead to a general election that's what he needs he needs a general election before the end of October to get him out of this hole that, let's be honest, he has dug for himself. He has left himself virtually no way out. Robin Lustig, always a pleasure to get your insights. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on Monocle 24. And thanks too to Elizabeth Braw. Elizabeth will be staying with us in just a moment to have a look at some of the other day's stories and going through the weekend newspapers too. You're listening to the Monocle House View.
So let's turn now to the emotional images of Ukrainian prisoners being reunited with their families as part of a prisoner exchange with Russia. Those freed include Ukrainian sailors and, controversially, a, I quote, person of interest over the downing of flight MH17, in which almost 300 people died. The swap is host- hoped to ease tensions between the two neighbours. Well, still with us today on the Monocle House is Elizabeth Braw, who leads the Modern Deterrence Programme at RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute here in, in the UK. Um, Elizabeth, the, these really were rather moving, lovely pictures, weren't they? As key Ukrainian figures were seen emerging from an aeroplane and being reunite, reunited with their loved ones. Yes, it's almost as yeah, I felt I almost wanted to cry along myself. Uh, it was really very emotional. And, and the Ukrainians, I think, um, very wisely um, made it a public event, uh, inviting the families and showing it on, on TV, whereas the Russians uh, kept it very quiet and, and uh, with only a couple of uh, TV or uh, media reporters present and, and no families. But uh, yes, and uh, this is a, a major step and, and Trump, uh, Donald Trump, uh, inevitably took to Twitter to, to congratulate Ukraine and Russia and it was a, a rare uh, productive or positive comment by, by the president on Twitter. Um, but this is a major step. So, as as we all remember, those Ukrainian sailors were captured by Russia in in, um, uh, in a, a narrow passage of um, of water, and they said they they were not in violation, or the ship was not in violation of any rules, and Russia said it was, and so the uh, there. Is, situation has been a bit in, in limbo ever since they were captured, but now they are back in Ukraine and. Um, it it is interesting. I think uh, when the president, uh, the new president of Ukraine, was elected, we all sort of smiled a bit. And you know, how can you possibly be president when your only experience is playing a president on TV? But uh, to his credit, he has uh, made some progress with with this. Uh, this this was one, one of um, President Vladimir Zelensky's um, election pledges, wasn't it? And he he hoped that the exchange was the first step to try to diffuse the frankly dire relationship between UK the, between Kiev and Moscow um, I think it must be noted that I think Vladimir Putin wasn't there to, to greet his prisoners on their return from from Ukraine uh, apparently he was watching some rhythmic gymnastics instead but Ukraine's relationship with Russia has hit rock bottom for five years now what does this 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 gesture mean or what could it lead to it's a rare positive step I think it's safe to say there haven't really been any positive steps since uh, Russia annexed uh, Crimea five years ago, and and of course since the the conflict in in uh, eastern Ukraine broke out, which is really a frozen war. Nothing is nothing much is happening apart from regular skirmishes, and there is no movement uh, in any direction, and and especially not towards a resolution of the conflict. So this is really the first step, and and Ukraine. Or the president, rather, who who has been the driving force behind this prisoner swap, did put a lot of capital into it, and and controversially, the the person of interest uh, who you mentioned, who was, in, well, he is 
treated as a witness in the shooting down of, of uh, the Malaysian airliner, although he may also have been involved, he was exchanged as well and given back to Russia. Now, we have to remember he had been captured by Ukrainian special forces who had taken him out of the country uh, because Ukraine wanted to question him and international prosecutors wanted to, que- or Dutch prosecutors who are handling this investigation wanted to question him as well. And now he's gone, so no longer available to to the authorities for um, questioning about uh, that uh, the shooting down of the airliner. Let's move on to our next subject because it sort of provides quite an interesting counterbalance. You mentioned there the fact that but on the ground, the skirmishes between in in, in the area that uh, that Russia has annexed continues. There's no great efforts being made to actually make any progress. However, the Ukrainian president has been pushing hard to make things happen. Let's turn now to Afghanistan, where there have been tremendous efforts on the ground and huge amounts of work behind the scenes to achieve a peace deal with the Taliban. It was thought that on Monday. A, a deal had been struck that we'd heard about little bits of progress going along. So we think everything's going terribly well. And then the last few hours it has broken um, that the US President Donald Trump literally tweeted to say that the peace deal with the Taliban has been cancelled, possibly the absolute opposite to what has been happening in Ukraine. This is, this is mind boggling, isn't it? Given the amount of effort that's, given, that's been given over so far. Yes, and not only did his tweet that had been cancelled, he also called it extremely uh, an extremely secret negotiation. <laughs> and, uh, I thought I knew the, about it, <laughs> uh, and I, I think we all thought that an extremely secret negotiation would remain extremely secret until it's concluded, and you can present um, your counterpart on on uh, in the rose garden and and uh, with a signed and sealed deal that will then be executed. But instead. Uh, Trump then uh, tweets that it's uh, the negotiations uh, are over or, or the uh, Taliban negotiators won't be coming to the US for their planned visit. Um, and uh, so who knows what US, US diplomats will do now. This was, of course, an extremely delicate process and uh, to negotiate with the Taliban at the same time as you're supporting the Afghan government, which is really the, the target of, of Taliban attacks. It's, it really has to be handled extremely um, carefully. And what can be done when the, when the American president drives the cart and horses through an awful lot of very sensitive, intricate work? Well, I think the State Department uh, in this administration uh, finds itself with the main task of making policy uh, uh, of uh, the collection of Trump's tweets, so sort of a a retroactive policy uh, in response to what Trump has tweeted, and that uh, must be uh, very draining and uh, um, energy-consuming. But what can be done now? Well, I think a lot of... um, persuasion will be needed with with the Afghan government to uh, to persuade them that that this is actually in their interest as well and to ignore Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's move on now to uh, something that on the on the first surface of it seems quite light-hearted and lovely the birth of two panda cubs in Berlin um, but somehow has become the subject of a diplomatic row there has been pressure from the German public to call these two little things Hong and Kong in protest at Beijing's handling of the crisis there um, Elizabeth this is I think we were talking before we you you came into the studio and you just said this is when you let people have the you know decide what what happens um, 
This has been the product of a, of a campaign by the German tabloid Bild, hasn't it? Which, is, which, as far as I can gather, hasn't really taken any great interest in international diplomacy in the past. Uh, but now we have these poor little panda cubs and we're ending up in another, little, in, in another mess. That's right. Never ask the people if if you're not prepared uh, for the results. So uh, we obviously have Brexit. We have the the Boaty McBoatface vote, uh, where um, it was the poll was uh, was uh, launched to to give people sort of a, in a light-hearted fashion to give people the opportunity to to name this boat. And lo and behold, it was became more light-hearted than than expected. And and the top result in that poll was Boaty McBoatface. And so uh, the the powers that be went with a different name. And so the question is now, what, what will the Germans do? So the, the zoo obviously expected something extremely cute because they are very cute, these little panda babies, tiny, tiny. And, and they have both survived. I, I learned in the news this week that it's rare for both uh, twins to survive and, and that the mother usually only looks after one and the other one is left to die. Well, the zookeepers have been making sure that the other one has uh, survived as well. And so the, <laughs> that then leads to this extra this, pressure. <laughs> this extra pressure. You can't really have one panda cub called Hong. Uh, but now we have two. <laughs> and the leading uh, choice of the people is Hong and Kong. Well, what can you do? You can go against the people so as not to enrage the Chinese government, which of course has a say in this because the Chinese government uh, is part of, of its soft power diplomacy. It lends pandas around the world. These are it, Chinese pandas, aren't that's they? They right. might have been born with a, they might have been able to qualify for a German passport, but actually Beijing can, can basically has ultimate control that, over them. That's right. And it can recall mother panda and, <laughs> and there will be no more uh, panda babies born in Berlin. Uh, so this is really uh, quite delicate. And uh, and uh, I think German uh, residents would be enraged if they were not listened to. And they would. Uh, by the way, Angela Merkel has just been on a on a uh, visit to China this week, and they would accuse um, the German government, even though it's not involved in the naming of of panda cups, it would involve, <laughs> accuse the German government of caving in to China. So this is extremely uh, uh, an extremely complicated situation, and. Uh, <laughs> Although I must say the names are quite fetching. They're quite good. Right, let's have a look at what's making the newspaper headlines, um, Elizabeth. I'm joined in the studio today on Monocle's Housey by Elizabeth uh, Braw from uh, the Royal United Services Institute. Uh, what have you found of interest? I think um, in one word it all starts with, uh, well, it starts with the letter A, Amber Rudd. Uh, her resignation is the main topic today and uh, quite rightly so because she was one of, of two moderate cabinet ministers or what I call one nation conservatives in in the cabinet of Boris Johnson. And it was surprising that, that he invited her to join the or to remain in the cabinet when he was elected leader. And it was uh, also surprising that, that she uh, agreed to stay on because she really represents the moderate wing of, of the Tory party. But she, she um, stayed on and uh, she stayed on even as... Her 21 colleagues were uh, in, in Parliament, uh, her moderate colleagues in Parliament were sacked, as, as we have discussed earlier today. And so it doesn't really come as a surprise. What does come as a surprise is the strength and um, 
and the really quite direct nature of her resignation letter, where, um, as we discussed earlier, she uh, accuses the prime minister in almost so, so many words of, of lying to, to the cabinet and to the country. Then another very interesting piece of news, which on any other day, I think, would have been uh, the main news is that we have an opioid crisis here in the UK. Now, the, the opioid crisis in the US is well known. Um, people's addiction to uh, primarily Oxycontin and how the pharmaceutical industry has, well, how it missold Oxycontin, claiming it doesn't cause addiction, which uh, lo and behold turns out not to be true. And the US is struggling with this um, seemingly unstoppable uh, opioid addiction, uh, which has uh, had uh, repercussions even outside public health. Uh, the family that owns the company that pro that makes OxyContin is now essentially, but they are they are major benefactors of of the arts, and they are essentially shunned by arts institutions as a result. Now we have in the UK um, now more than half a million people addicted to OxyContin. That's a, a significant number and uh, will put additional pressure on the NHS. Um, and very, very quickly, there's something else about an SAS, a new cyber SAS, which you were terribly excited about being, do, doing the job that you do. Yes, it's, uh, I must say, terribly exciting news. So how do you... <laughs> How do you respond to cyber warfare? Uh, the armed forces can uh, launch uh, offensive cyber attacks, but uh, the armed forces are really only responsible uh, for parts of national security. Then we have GCHQ, which is not really responsible for... Um, uh, for offensive cyber, and we have the National Cyber Security Center. So it's it's all sort of divided responsibilities, but we'll get this new agency that will be connected to both the Minister of Defence and GCHQ that will be responsible for essentially um, defending us against cyber attacks. And we have to remember that that involves cyber attacks on private companies and the wider population as well, because they are very often the target of such attacks. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed to Elizabeth Braw and to my guest Robin Lustig too. If you missed any of today's programme, then head to our website monocle.com to listen again in just a little while. Thanks to our supervising producer Ben Rylan, our researcher Charlie Phil McCourt and our studio manager Max Barr. For now from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.